0: Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to worship you through our time in the Word. And as we come to, for for many, a very um, vague passage of Scripture, it is amazing how it is through um, those verses that we're going to be looking at that you not only uh, declared those things to take place before they have taken place but also they are still very applicable to us to this day. And so, Father, we ask that you can speak to our hearts so that we can see the glories of Christ in all of his excellence, in all of his supremacy, in all of his preeminence, so our time within the Word can be acceptable in your sight. So, Father, we come before you with empty hands to praise your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, please open it up to Genesis chapter 49. As you know, we are in the midst of the story of Joseph. And as we began last week, this is a, a story to where not only is it the life of Joseph, but it really isn't about the story of Joseph itself. Because we know what happened to Joseph and what his brothers did to him. They sold him into slavery, um, on how he, um, um, how he was placed into prison because of the situation that happened with um, Potiphar's wife, on how he was forgotten there, and how yet God brought him into power in Egypt to, to become second in line. All of that wasn't for just to teach Joseph leadership skills, but it was which, God was using those situations to save a people, to bring about within his people his redemptive plans. And so the story of Joseph is telling God's people that he is always providentially at work despite the situations that they may be going through. And so we get to see that the story of Joseph is actually God working to save the line of Judah. To bring about his redemptive plan. Because so far, if you look at the overall picture of the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, God promised a promised one who would come to bring about salvation. But then, through whom would that come from? We know, beginning with um, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that it would be through one of Abraham's seed. And then through Isaac and then through Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And so the question the entire time was, which one of those 12 sons would the promised line continue? Trouble was, there was a severe famine that was taking place. And so God used Joseph's story to bring um, God's people into Egypt to preserve them as a people, in, in which 400 years later they would exit not just a large family as they currently stand, but as a nation to bring about the fulfillment of his promises that he has made to give them a land that would flow with milk and honey, to bring about that there would be a promised seed, to bring about the ultimate blessings that God's people would give, not just to themselves, but to the nations, and so this is, has been the story so far. And so we've been looking at Genesis chapter 47. And just to bring you back up to speed, there are two things you need to know as we begin to look at the verses once again as they begin to unfold. First of all, this is a prophetic passage. This is a passage that talks about prophecy. This is the first time that we have God speaking through a person to bring about certain events that have not transpired yet. And so prophecy is found throughout the Bible. It is one of those proofs proofs that shows the truthfulness and the accuracy of the Bible because certain events have not taken place yet. So God would bring about a prophet to speak forth him to foretell things that haven't t- uh, taken place. And so these things... Um, go on to prove that God's word is trustworthy because they are proofs, because no, only God can know what the future is. Man, they could come up with good guesses. Sometimes it's like throwing a dart on, um, on a dartboard and coming up, well, that may be what's taking place. But when God speaks about events that have not taken place yet, he is right 100% of the time. And the reason why he knows the future is because he has decreed the future. He is the sovereign one. Nothing is outside of his his control. Nothing ever surprises him. He has foredained everything, every aspect of every event that has ever taken place. He has known about it. And so when you look at Scripture as a whole, 27% of Scripture at the time in which it was written, was prophetic in nature. Meaning certain events hadn't taken place, but yet God uses a person to speak forth that this is what will, will be taken place. And so there are hundreds of prophecies given in the Old Testament. You just take Christ, for example. There are 333 prophecies concerning Christ. Only 109 of them were fulfilled for his first coming. Christ is going to return a second time, which leaves 224 um, prophecies had yet to be fulfilled. And so with the fulfillment of each prophecy that God's word shows, it drives another nail into the board, which anchors and solidifies our confidence in the veracity Of the word of God take for um, example Isaiah 44 verse 28 God even names a name of a person who hasn't even been born yet names calls him out and say I am going to use him in Isaiah 44 verse 28 we find this it is I who says of Cyrus he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desires And then in um, Isaiah 45, it goes on to speak of Cyrus by name once again. When this prophecy was given, it's not going to be until another 100 years later that um, Cyrus would become king of Persia. And so God knows him by name, calls him out, states that he will come and he will rise up into power long before he ever comes to the scene. Now, it's interesting that we try to predict who's the next president of this country may be, and normally you have a 50-50 chance. Normally it's either this guy or this guy, maybe sometimes a third guy to mess things up, but you have a 50-50 chance. But try predicting a president 100 years from now. You would have no clue because they're not even born yet. You don't even know who they are or what their name may be. But God knows. So as we begin to look at chapter 49, we need to be reminded that it is prophetic in nature. God is speaking to his sons on his deathbed, and he gives them blessings. And as we have seen, some of these these are more, more like a curse, but he never disowns his children. But he is speaking to them beyond the here and now and he speaks on how their descendants are going to be whether or not they brought it out from their own sinful actions that gets passed down from one generation to the next or ultimately it shows the sinfulness of their heart on how that is going to be laid out and so when you look at prophecy it just reinforces the truthfulness of God's Word and so many of these verses though it applies To them in the here and now it looks forward 500 years it looks forward a thousand years it looks forward even beyond the here and now of today into the future when Christ will actually return and so Jacob is speaking to his sons the last words that they will ever hear from him sometimes as he speaks to his sons the words are 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 difficult to hear they're stinging Sometimes um, um, they're, they're very positive in nature. And as these verses begin to unfold, we will see that. But yet there's a second element that you need to understand when we come to this passage, especially as we l- uh, look at Judah and then beyond. Because as chapter 49 begins to unfold, there is this aspect of which one of the sons are going to be declared with all the firstborn rights and privileges. Now, the firstborn aspect had two portions or two components to it. There's a double blessing component, and there's a component of the preeminence. And normally, it got passed on to the firstborn son. When Abraham was there, he passed on the firstborn blessing uh, to Isaac, and so on. But as we've seen from chapter 48 on, Jacob breaks apart those two components, He gives the double blessing component to Joseph. This part of the inheritance affected the double portion of the land that after adopting uh, two of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they would be viewed as not only his own sons, as he had, but they will be uh, referred to as tribes. So as the other sons would be considered tribes, they would be considered a tribe and receive a land portion. So when they finally go into the land, there was the uh, land of Ephraim and the land of Manasseh. Joseph gets that double portion blessing. And it's interesting because we see this breaking of, uh, of, uh, of the blessing found in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 in the first two verses. It says this, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright, the inheritance, the double portion, was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in a genealogy according to the birthright. But look at verse 2. We see that other portion, the portion of preeminence, Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, meaning he received the preeminence, from him came the leader. Yet the birthright, the inheritance, the the land portion belonged to Joseph. So there's a distinction there that though one son normally got both, there's a spiritual significance that is taking place through Joseph and his line and through Judah with his line. And so as we've seen last time, uh, Judah is going to receive the preeminence. And so he's speaking to his sons as a prophet. And I want to start um, sort of looking at this one passage as we sort of pick things up from last week. I want to start at verse 8 looking at Judah once again, review that, and then get into the next um, uh, few of Jacob's children. So, look at verse 8. It says this Judah, your sons shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. For the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches and lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares to rouse him? The scepter. "...shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk." Zebulon will dwell at the seashore, and he shall have haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Ishakar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulders to, to bear burdens and became a slave to forced labor. Dan shall judge his people, as one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the, ho- the horse's heel so that his rider falls backwards. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich and he will yield royal dainties." And so as, as you can see, there's a lot of symbolism going on. There's a lot of pictures. Things are now going from a narrative to where Joseph's story is a story that's being told to where it's almost in poetic language. But yet with each one of the sons, there's imagery going on to explain things, to sort of illustrate how God is going to work in their life or how, or how far um, they are from the Lord. And so the list here begins with the sons of Leah. And so um, it, it begins in, in the opening verses, with in verses 3 and 4, we saw already that Reuben is the shameful son. He was the son who was brought up to be preeminent. So much so, it's mentioned it twice, in these two verses but yet because of his actions and what he had done to bring shame upon his father and shame upon upon his family by sleeping with his father's concubine he was not going to be preeminent so he is skipped over from that preeminence the one in which who the family would be listening to and be the preeminent one and then we find in verses In in the next set of verses, Simon and Levi, they are the violent sons. These are Leah's second and third sons. They have the same thing. They will not be preeminent because of their actions, in which even though they are trying to avenge their daughter's defilement by, by by the Shechemites. They go in through their actions and just slaughter them all in a state of their weakness. And so this does not bring uh, honor to, to the family and they will not be the preeminent one. And then we saw in verses 8 through 12 last week, Judah. The aspect of preeminence is now going to be placed upon him. He is going to be the preeminent one. So as the chapter opens up, Reuben, you will not have preeminence for what you have done. Simon and Levi, you're not going to have preeminence for what has been done. But for Judah, as we said last time, he was thinking that he was not going to be preeminent because of the inclusion of his actions in Genesis chapter 38. With his immorality with his daughter-in-law Tamar. He was far away from the Lord, far away from the family, marries a foreigner. His heart was very far from God, and he knew from his actions it did not bring any honor to Jacob or the family. And his immediate thought was that it was going to be going to someone else. And so as we saw last time, that this one section nicely breaks up into four parts. Judah is going to be preeminent. And so we get to see that Judah's supreme preeminence is in the immediate context, going back to God doing a work in Judah's heart to become the spokesperson, the de facto leader of the family. As when they go to Egypt with Benjamin and Judah guarantees his own life when the situation with Benjamin in which he was going to be thrown into prison He would say, I will be his substitute, that he would give up himself so uh, so Benjamin could go back with his father. And so God has been using Judah to be the preeminent one all along, not because of Judah's accomplishments. Judah didn't get this preeminence for what he has worked hard for, what his goals in which he was striving for. It was despite those things because of Genesis chapter 38. And so there we get to see the preeminence of Judah beginning to get established. And then we saw from verse 8, last time, we saw Judah's unified praise. We see in in verse 8 that your brothers will praise you. And so this is... A very, as we said last time, a very important aspect. Because it is through the praise, it is through the unity that God has brought about in the family, not because anything of what Judah had done, but because God chose Judah to be the one, to be the preeminent one, and he's brought about a work in not only his life, but in the family's life, to where they willingly bow down to praise Judah. So this praise is a unified praise because in Joseph's situation, when Joseph had those two dreams to where it just ticked off the brothers all the more, so much so that they wanted to murder him, that they, they said that they were never bow down to him. But yet later on, not knowing that um, they were before Joseph, they thought they were before the prime minister of Egypt, they were bowing down because he was powerful, because of the respect they had to give to get the food, because maybe they even were afraid of him. That's a different kind of bowing down. Here it's a unified praise in which they bow down to him. And then we saw in verses 9 through 10, Judah's ultimate power. And so we, we saw last time, and the reason why I'm sort of reviewing, I kicked it into light speed and we sort of begin to uh, move real fast. And there's just a couple things that I didn't cover, I just want to touch base with. And so the, the imagery now goes to a description of Judah In how he has ultimate power, through the picture of a lion. And so Jacob is going to be saying that Judah and his descendants will be like a lion. A lion which has a picture of strength and power. Lions can be very beautiful. They look like giant kitty cats. But the issue is they have teeth and claws. They can be terrifying. They can literally rip you apart in seconds. And so this is the description that we have of Judah, of his power. But yet he can also be uh, terrifying. And our minds, generally think, oh, we we think of of Christ being the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is true. There is a future fulfillment in which uh, Jesus will be that ultimate leader. But also it began with King David, that kingly line in which it would come through him, the mighty warrior. And then it is through him. He was the one who set that gold standard on on how the kings should be. And so it began with David. It was partially fulfilled when Christ came the first time. But it will ultimately be fulfilled when he comes back a second time. Because we looked at Revelation chapter 5 in which John is looking out and there's nobody worthy to open the scroll. And then he is told to stop weeping for the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Only he is worthy. There you have the combination of the lion, and then you have the combination of the ruler in the same sentence. And so you have then the nations bowing down to the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we said that there is no meek lion here, there is no timid lion. He is coming back to judge. And we looked at the picture of how he's going to be judging there's a sword. His garments are full of blood as he begins to judge man's sins. And so though David begins and is a foretaste of this great lion, there is a greater lion to come from the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then in verse 10, we have this aspect of him ruling. Not only is he a powerful figure, but he is one who will have ultimate rule over everything and so in verse 10 we says the scepter will not depart from judah the ruler's staff from between his feet this staff this scepter was a sign of a king who had ultimate authority and kingship and so it was a sign of a man who had the right to rule and so when you look at throughout history, a scepter has always been a part of a sign of a person being king. When uh, Prince Charles gets crowned next month, not only will he wear a crown, but he will be holding a scepter. That picture of authority still gets passed down even to this day. And so Jacob is saying that through Judah, there'll be one who will have ultimate Rights to rule, and this and this power shall never depart from his seed. And so we said that that is a picture of Christ. So what we're seeing with Judah, though I flew by uh, through uh, through most of it, is a picture of his ultimate authority, in which he will never be thrown off his throne. He will never be conquered. He is there to establish with a uh, rod of iron. And his rules is over ultimately everyone. And so that is why he's known as the Lord Jesus. Curious, the sovereign one. And even Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verses eight and nine, that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's more than just recognizing that Jesus was a good man because there are a lot of pe- people who equate Jesus as he, he was a prophet, he was a good man. But they don't acknowledge him as Lord, that God raised him from the dead. And so m- many people look at Jesus and they, they believe in that as salvation, but they never accept him as Lord. But you, it's not a second step. You do that at salvation. He is Lord. He's always been Lord. And you see your um, how woeful you compare to Him and how your sin needs to be judged. And you repent from your sin and you turn to Him because you see yourself as utterly worthless in improving your stand before God. And so it is turning to the Lordship of Christ to confess Him as Lord that God grants salvation because you believe and what Christ had done on the cross was your substitute. But yet, in the next part of the verse that I sort of burped over, I apologize, it says, until Shiloh comes. Some, um, this is one of those aspects to where it's very difficult to translate, as I mentioned last time. Some people look at that as a pronoun, that it is a direct picture of a name for Jesus, and there are even songs that talk about Shiloh, and that's true, in fact, but there's more to it than just that, and so if you have the New American Standard, as I have, it says, until Shiloh comes. The uh, King James says the same thing. The NIV translated it as, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And then I like the ESV, which is probably the most accurate, until tribute comes to him. And how the ESV sort of translates that, it goes back to, um, um, to how, some, how the um, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translate this verse here. It translates this verse as until the things laid up in store come to his possessions. So there's this aspect of kingliness that are laid up, and there are things laid up for him and, and until he receives possession of all of those things. So, it is, so Shiloh is a picture of Christ's kingship, in which he did come as king the first time, though he died upon the cross, but he is going to return as the king of kings and Lord of lords and be recognized of that, and every knee shall bow and every tongue is going to confess, Philippians 2, as Jesus Christ will be Lord. And so when you get to look at Judah, it is a picture of Christ on display, just from a, a different facet, that he is preeminent. He does receive praise. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He does have an ultimate authority because he holds the scepter. But yet there's one aspect in verses 11 and 12, which is the fourth aspect, we get to see Judah's lavish prosperity. Though there's a physical aspect about it, there's also a spiritual aspect that I didn't have time to touch base last week. Look at verses 11 and 12. There we have, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey colt to the choice vine. He washes his garment in wine. There's a lot of grapes and, and wine and, and, and um, grapevines being talked about here. Uh, and his robes in the blood of grapes. Verse 12, his eyes are dull. Better translated, it, um, his eyes are darker than from wine, and his teeth white from milk, or better translated, whiter than milk. New Americans sort of fall short, but that's okay. And so we get to see, as we, as, as we talked about last time, there's this prosperity that comes from, and he uses a picture of the fruit of the vine as describing this great prosperity, showing that the grapevines are so plentiful throughout the country, not not necessarily literally there's going to be a kingdom that, that you'll be tripping over the grapevines, but the prosperity is going to be so great in the Lord's reign that it is like the abundance of the wine being used to wash clothes that there is so much wine it is better to wash your clothes in in the wine than to use water water is plentiful water is cheap but there's so much wine you just might as well um, use use the wine to do that as you know anything about wine which i know, i sadly know very little of but normally when you look at wine wine comes in very limited amounts you only produce what the grapevines actually produce and then from that you have different qualities you have the bad qualities which are bad you have the okay and they're okay then you have the expensive blend the top shelf ones i don't drink wine but there's a lot on the top shelf because they have the highest prices But the picture here is is, is that from the vineyard, the vineyards are so prosperous in that all of the wine is so plentiful that it is the best wine, that in verse 12, there's so much wine, it is like it turns... The people drink so much wine that their eyes are darkened from that or reddened from that. It doesn't condone the drinking here. It's just the abundance of using wine in everything that it shows that their eyes are darker. And it also shows the um, aspect of how their health is by the prominence of milk, their teeth white from milk or whiter than milk. And so it is a picture of God's prospering His people, not just monetarily here, but I just want to underscore just for uh, a few moments of the spiritual aspects because there is that aspect of the picture being, um, being described because we talked about that in John chapter 2, when Jesus began his earthly ministry, his first miracle was turning the water into wine. And as soon as he would have done that to where there was more wine to where in which they could, they could drink, in that even the servants of the wine thought that they brought the best wine out for the last wine, that alarm bells would have gone off in their head. Because this was a picture of this one passage, that Jesus would be claiming to be the promised one. And the promised one would bring about a prosperity. And this prosperity would be pictured by an abundance of wine. So the rumors would have been spreading. He created out of water wine. And so it is more than just a, uh, a physical prosperity, but, but there is also this aspect of a spiritual prosperity in which the lion of the tribe of Judah would be bringing about. Hold your place here, and I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. In Ephesians chapter 1, We have a great picture of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf for the Father's glory on the cross. Spiritual blessings labeled one after another after another. Things in which we, we did nothing to, uh, to earn but everything that God has done. And so look at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. We find blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have everything we need for life in godliness right now at our behalf. God has blessed us. He is not cheap with his blessing. He's not stingy at all. But he goes on. Not only he's blessed us with everything spiritual that we would need, that it's available to every believer. There are no second-tier Christians to where there's those people up here who are extra-spiritual, and then there's the normal Joes down here. They're lucky to be along for the ride. We're all in the same place. We all have the ability to be taught by the Holy Spirit in the same way. God has blessed us with everything that we ever need. But look at verse 4. Not only has He blessed us, but He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 5. He predestined us. How did He predestine us? To the adoption of son. He adopted us as sons and daughters to Himself. Verse 6. To the praise of His glory, of His grace, He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. He bestowed on us grace. In him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Verse 8, he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And then verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his world. And then he sort of goes on, but we can stop right there. So you get the picture the great prosperity isn't just a that god will be prosperous to israel because he is saying that there is one who's going to come it's going to come through the line of judah but for the next 400 years they weren't prosperous they were in slavery so it's not necessarily tied to a physical prosperity in the here and now but there will be a greater prosperity that will come physically in god's kingdom but also the spiritual bless- blessing he lavishes those things on us by his unmerited favor. They are there. He blessed us. He adopted us. He predestined us. What did we do to earn those things? Nothing. What did he, he do to give us those things? Everything. He did those things for the Father's glory um, on behalf of what Christ had done. And so, we get to see the preeminence of the lion of the tribe of Judah and so it is part of what the pledge here go back to genesis chapter 49 look at verse 28 it says all these the 12 tribes which is that prophetic aspect because they're just a large family now they're not they're not huge tribes yet the tribes of of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them according with the blessing appropriate to him. And so there's this aspect of blessing being, being, um, uh, being bestowed on his sons, and it's going to be made into fruition of what the lion of the tribe of Judah has done. And so that's Jesus on display Beginning with David, through the kings, climaxing with him coming the first time, die upon the cross, and then he is going to return as the preeminent one, the one in which we are going to bow down to him. Everyone's going to bow down to him. He is one who's going to bring about a lavish prosperity to his people. But yet in verse 13, we already looked at, when we looked at uh, during the first week, Zebulon. He was the appointed son. Jacob speaks to Zebulon, and this is the only place where he tells Zebulon where his descendants are going to live in the land, on how prosperous that they are going to be. And so he was the appointed son. We get to see, uh, we saw that um, God is the one who is sovereignly in control of the events in his life. So that was his blessing. But I want to, in a few moments that we have left, sort of move on to the next next couple of sons, Ishakar, in verses 14 and 15. Ishakar was the too satisfied son, had to come up with a name, but. So I came up with a two-satisfied son. He's actually the fifth son of Leah, and is probably the last in line for Leah. So Jacob talks to him. And it's interesting because there's an interesting imagery for him being used here. Look at verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulders to bear burdens and became a slave to forced labor. So, the imagery here we have at the beginning of verse 14 Ishakar is a donkey, but he's a strong donkey. Now, for us, we have a negative connotation of a donkey. You're stubborn. That, that's not what we have here. This is actually a positive picture. So, first, putting to mind something positive. This, this is a good thing. Not a, not a neg- negative thing. Donkeys at this time were, e- were equated with horses. Uh, donkeys are strong, working, industrious. They can carry heavy loads. Matter of fact, they carry more than its share of loads, having great patience. So this is a picture of a positive animal. So uh, Ishakar, your you're a strong donkey. So keep that in mind. Lying down between the, the sheepfolds. It's interesting because for us, uh, we have that negative picture, but even in 2 Samuel uh, 16, Meshivapheth's servant presents King David with a string of donkeys for his family so his household can ride them. And so donkeys were used for a lot of diff- different things, but they were, they were viewed as equally as horses are are sort of viewed. It was a sign of affluence. And so, um, Ishikar, you're going to be not just a donkey, but a very strong donkey. So this is a prophecy which is going to look into the future of of the descendants of Ishikar of when they occupied the land, that they will be known as hard workers. And if you were to look at the book of Judges to see how God used the tribe of Issachar, they were not only hard workers, but they fought nobly with Deborah and Barak. Matter of fact, when it, was come, when it came time for, for battle, we learn in Numbers chapter 26 that they came up with 64,000 soldiers. And so the men of Issachar were trustworthy hard-working, especially in times of battle. And so that's what they would be known for. But yet, there's the next part of the verse. Lying down between sheepfolds. They're known for a bright side. They are there to work hard until this, that aspect of the verse is a picture of inactivity. It looks like they begin to become complacent, without ambition, and they begin to wallow in idleness and laziness, that when it's time to, do, to um, tend to the sheep, they begin to lie down between the sheepfolds and not get the job done. They're sitting on the sidelines. They're no longer an active participant, but they become spectators. And so they leave the work for someone else to do. They started off strong, but they ended weak. And so that's the prophetic element that is going here. Ishakar, you and your descendants, you will be known for hardworking, but that's going to change. Beware. How? What was the cause for their laziness, if you would? Look at verse 15. When he, the descendants of Ishakar, saw that a resting place was good. The place where where they settled, it was a good land. It was a prosperous land. And when they began to saw that it was good, they began to put their feet up. The land was pleasant. It was beautiful to look at. It was sweet. It was delightful the good life began to make them complacent. And so they began to put their feet up and enjoy the easy living that they had for themselves. They were hardworking, but the good life got the best of them. And so it is like God was blessing them, but the blessing that God has given to them made their hearts complacent, so much so to the place that where they began to lose the desire to serve God. So we begin to get to see at the end of verse 15 that Ishakar's descendants bowed his shoulder, shoulder to bear burdens. They got complacent. They bowed their shoulders, meaning they would receive, they would allow Foreign oppressors to come and to place a yoke around their neck. So much so that these oppressors, these outside enemies, um, that they would take advantage of their complacency and place them under bondage. And this came true in 732 when Issachar was part of the northern kingdom and they were carried off by Assyria and placed into captivity to where they became, as the next part of the verse, a slave to force labor. No longer did they have the ability to self-govern themselves. No longer could they just live on on the high point. No longer could they really serve God the way they could have served God. And all began because they lost the desire to fight any longer, to be faithful to God. They took the easy life, which led them into The road of oppression. And so we begin to see that this is something that can happen not just to them but to us. We live in a very affluent country. Out of this affluent country, we live in a very affluent area. We can take for granted the blessings that God has given to us. We can be Surrounded by so many distractions that our culture sort of throws at us to where we get to enjoy the life of ease and begin to miss what is going around us. I like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 13 and 14, how Paul sort of viewed His past and what his goal is for the future, he says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal of the prize, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So it was his goal to keep pressing on, to not rely on what God had done in his past and just sort of be content, but to keep pressing on. So it doesn't matter how old you have been in the faith, your job with the Lord, serving the Lord is never really over. I remember when I look at one of the churches that I served at, one of the elders sort of, sort of mentioned that ministry is really for the young. It's their job to do that. It's like, oh, okay, but God has used you and given you wisdom. I, I never quite understood that. Because a believer is never a spectator. They're never sitting on the sides. Even if you say, right now in my life, I am so busy, as most people are, there's so much going on, all right? How can God use you? Be an encourager. When you come to church, find out how you can pray for someone. How is God working in your life? Encourage somebody. You're know, Social media just popped in. I'm praying for you. Be an encourager. You may not have big blocks of time, but whatever that may be. And so a Christian never retires no matter how old you are. There's always something God can use you. And so with Ishikar, they got lazy. They got c- content where they were. And so that's Ishikar. But it doesn't stop there, because then we move on to Bilhaz, Rachel's handmaid's first son, Dan. In the few moments that we have left, I just want to look at Dan. Dan was the judged son. I sort of changed the wording this morning, and so it may not, the, the son who judged, yeah, but I like the judged son better. Sorry about that. And so, look at verse 16. Let's look at Jacob's son, Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his riders fall backwards. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. That's Dan. He has an interesting uh, imagery being, being used here. One of a serpent. Who is coiled and, and biting the enemies as they go by? When you when you look at the tribe of, of when you look at Dan's name itself, it's a play on words because Dan names means to judge. So Dan, the judge, is going to judge. And so Jacob is telling him, um, you and your descendants will have a place of prominence. You're going to be in a position of authority to make legal decisions. Not just locally, but for, uh, before their nation. And as they begin to develop as a nation when they go into the land, they will have prominence. They will be judging things. And so that part came true. Dan, you will be a judge. But yet, not just a judge. We have the imagery there of a serpent. Once again, we have a negative connotation. Whenever we see the word serpent, we think of Genesis chapter 3 and 4. That serpent that deceived Eve and God Adam. There's the talking serpent. It's a positive picture here. It's, it's not a negative, because a snake can have positive v- virtues. And that is what is being described with Dan. Dan can, Dan is like a snake who can get coiled and attack those from the outside and do severe damage with his bite. And so that's that's the picture. He is going to strike and bring down great opponents because they're going to bite the horse's heel and the rider will fall backwards. And so the picture is Dan is like a snake sitting by the side of the road when oppressors... Will, will come in, they will bite the horse, and the, horse and, and the riders will fly off the horse, thus killing them. And so the picture is the serpent being small, but yet very prolific. And as the nation of Israel begins to get developed, that's exactly what they were. They had a number of mighty men represented the tribe of Dan. You know one. He was a judge in Israel, Samson. Samson was there. He was a mighty, a mighty judge. He did other things, but that's for another story. But he was a judge in Israel for 20 years. He was from the tribe of Dan. He was known for his strength, his, uh, his ability to kill, and being a judge in Israel. So that's Dan. So far, pretty positive. But look at verse 18. Here's where the, the negative comes. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Jacob is, and this is the only place that we have it here in his blessings, is praying to God for Dan. And he is praying for his salvation. That word salvation there could be translated as deliverance. And it could be sort of translated in a lot of different ways. Salvation from financial trouble. Salvation from a military battle. But when you look at the Old Testament within a whole, it's probably more of a spiritual aspect, a spiritual salvation. So Jacob is praying for Dan and his descendants that they would have a spiritual salvation which comes to them. Sad picture. One who is so helpful. One who is so prolific, but yet gets to the place where they depart from God. And this is exactly what happens 500 years later. In Judges chapter 18, in, verses, in verse 30, we find that Dan was the first tribe to set up false idols. It says, the sons of Dan set up for themselves graven image. In Jonathan, the son of Gershom and the son of Manasseh, and he set his sons were, were, um, were priests to the tribe of the Danites, that's the Dan's. Um, Until the day of the captivity of the Lord, and so Dan led the way for the other nation, the other tribes to follow in their footsteps to bring about a falling away from the Lord. And so, uh, so Jacob is going to pray that salvation will come to Dan's descendants. So much so that though we don't have time there, if we were to go to Revelation chapter 7, there we have the 144,000 passage being mentioned, 12,000 from each tribe equating the 144,000. These are going to be Jewish converts during the time of the seven-year tribulation. But when you look at the names of the tribes there, there is one tribe that is notably not mentioned. Dan. Dan. You have people who get saved from the 12 tribes, and Dan is not mentioned there. It seems like Dan is blotted out from God's work. And so with Dan, though the descendants of Dan will come to faith when, when, Christ, when, when the eyes are opened and Christ returns, there seems like that there is a profession of faith to God, but yet there's a falling away after a time. They followed God, but yet it stopped, and they fell away. They thought they professed to know Christ, but they didn't possess Christ. They had an understanding, but it wasn't to the heart. And those are the ones, our Lord, who is going to say, I never knew you. Now, it's very clear that Scripture tells us that no true believer can lose their salvation. So they looked like followers of Yahweh God, but they weren't. One verse that I go to often when someone says that a Christian can lose their salvation is John chapter 10, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life. They will not perish, and no one can take them out of my hand. There's ownership. There's a completeness that is found there. There's no conditions. If they continue, no. My sheep know my voice. I give them eternal life. But yet, there's a theological understanding that also takes place. That's also found in like Romans chapter four and verse five, when a person gets declared righteous or justified. Paul says in the, um, in Romans four or five, but to the one who does not the work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, God declares the believer righteous. His faith is credited to him as righteousness. When does this take place? When does God declare a person righteous? If you're a Catholic like I used to be, one day when you get to purgatory and you serve your time, that's when you'll be declared righteous. No. Every time you see the word justifies, it's in the present tense. It's when a person gets saved in the here and now. When you come to faith, God declares you righteous. So how can you become undeclared? You can't. And so Scripture, we could have five messages just on that aspect. But Paul makes it very clear in the eternal security chapter, in Romans chapter 8. It begins in verse 1 by saying there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it ends by saying in verse 39 that nothing can separate the believer from the love of God. But yet, as we've been seeing for Pastor Joey going through the seven churches... Seven times it mentions, it mentions those who overcome. You have to overcome. Well, what's that? Is that, a, is that a, something that's contradictory? No. The person who has placed their faith in Christ will, will, will continue in that faith. They will overcome all the obstacles. They will be there at the end. It's a fruit of one's faith, not a cause for a person to get saved. And so that's the key. We have the responsibility to continue to walk in Christ. And so when our Lord tells his disciples, if you truly love me, you will, uh, you will obey my commandments. Amen. I know so many people that I work with, I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? I am. And then they can point to an event. Well, when I was young, I threw a stick on the fire. Well, I go to church. I go to church Easter and Christmas. But they don't say, they, they look at what they're doing. They don't say, I saw my sin. And I saw how hopeless I was. But yet, this is what Christ has done for me. He's forgiven me in my hopelessness. And so that's a picture of really what the table is all about. And so there are those, and we know those who have fallen away from the faith. And so what do we do for them? We pray. We share our faith with them, call call them to Christ. But we pray because we have the power through prayer. And so we pray fervently for the Holy Spirit to convict and then we leave the results to God. And so we never know when a person gets too far to come to faith. I just look at it, well, that may take place, but I'm going to pray all the more harder that, that God will bring them to the place where they see the gloriousness of the cross with proper eyes so that, so that they can turn to Christ in their hopelessness. And so that is what, to, that's, that is what we celebrate when we come to, to the table the salvation and the security that we have that is found with Christ. And so it is a time just for believers. So if you don't know that you are saved, please let these elements go. So I'm going to have the men come forward at this time. And we're going to partake at the table. Though this is something, this is, this is something that we do often, It's a special time, not that we tack it on, but to remember. It's a memorial so that when our children see, why are they always eating bread? Why are they drinking grape juice? Oh, let me tell you. It's a picture of Christ's broken body. It's a picture of the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's a picture for us never to forget. And so that is what we celebrate this morning. So let's pray. Father... We thank you that we can come and to remember our Lord at this time. And so, Father, let us see the preeminence of Christ in what he has done. Let us bow our knee to him this day. Let us, Father, take advantage of the prosperity that you have given to us, especially those spiritual things. Because it was not something that we had done for Judah. Didn't earn the right to be preeminent. But it was despite of. It is the power of what the covenant did in his heart. Not him fulfilling the covenant that made him preeminent. And that is what you do within our own heart. It's not what we do for you to hopefully earn salvation. Because we'll do something to mess that up. But it is what you have done with us. Because you were a substitute. You paid the sin that was destined for me. And so thank you we can celebrate that at the table through the bread and blood. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.